Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hosting Nicely and uh, interviewee, your journal club leader, Dr. Jake Mann of Birmingham. Hi, morning. Jake, you've picked out for us today. Um, by the way, you people listening in, have you got your pencils and your papers poised or are you going to take notes on which articles we're recommending? If you don't, if you're driving, then don't worry about it. There's a commentary on the website that lists the articles and tells you a little bit about what we think of them. One of them is by Guo et al., Early Life Diet and Risk of Inflammatory Bowel Disease, a pooled study in two Scandinavian birth cohorts. The other, which appears in Espigan, uh, sorry, but which appears in JPGN, is by Raghu and others, The Impact of Early Immunosuppression on Pediatric Liver Transplant Outcomes Within One Year. Jake, you said let's start with the gut paper because it's such a lovely piece of work. Tell us what it's about and tell us why it's so lovely. Well, this is a high-quality study. It's a prospective study across two birth cohorts and the Scandinavian countries have a very well joined up system for national categorization of disease and classification which allows them to do these kinds of pieces of work. So here they took two large cohorts, total 80,000 children who've been followed up from essentially birth but they used the data at one year and three years and they looked at their diet as reported in surveys and then linked uh, them to uh, disease outcomes as adults according to ICD-10 coding, which then meant they could look at later diagnoses in adult life of inflammatory bowel disease and what their diet exposure was as children to try and draw associations as to whether certain food groups or overall quality of diet influenced later risk of development of inflammatory bowel disease as adults. That is, um, excuse the language, but that is freaking amazing. Did they actually follow it? 80,000 Scandinavian kids for two decades plus? Well, I don't think they did individual patient level follow-up for that duration. Oh. I believe these studies did detailed data collection at an individual patient level and family level probably for childhood and then, or a component of childhood and then linked to nationalized data collection systems later on in life. Okay, so it's, there's just a chance that there's a difference between the initial cohorts and the followed-up cohorts, but taking other things as equal and average things out, these are trustworthy data. They are. I guess one thing to factor in is that the initial cohort was very large, 80,000 children, though the absolute number of individuals who developed inflammatory bowel disease is 307, which is... Not an insignificant number, but it's not a huge cohort. And I suppose that's the that's the nature of doing a prospective cohort study where you have a large starting number and then few with uh, the actual cases versus most of the existing data on this kind of topic where you'd have a, a case control where you may have you know, a thousand patients with IBD, but then you're looking retrospectively. So Jake, I'm trying I'm doing sums in my head. And I'm not very good at it, but what I've come up with is 307 over 80,000 is pretty much the same as 3 over 800 
is like uh, one in three thousand or three in one thousand. Yeah, three in one thousand, I think. What's the actual incidence overall of inflammatory bowel disease? That I should know a, that, but I don't. It's similarly, that is a number that I should know, but I don't. It feels about right to me. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's trustworthy. Then that's a, that's a nice affirmative, affirmative point. Okay. And what exactly did, did they did they sort out the dietary experience by first the first year of life and then second the first three years of life? Or... Yeah, so they had data on the diet in at year one and year three, and then independently were able to compare those to the development of inflammatory bowel disease later in life. And the sort of headline is that healthy diet in particular consumption of vegetables and fish at year one of life was associated with reduced incidence of inflammatory bowel disease in adulthood but not diet at three years of age let me let me move to a social correlation here an attempted social correlation um this may be my prejudice but i think of fizzy drink and sweets and uh, crisps diets as being more frequently than not the choice of an underclass, a social underclass, a financial underclass. Is there a similar correlation between social class during childhood and development of inflammatory bowel disease? Can this be extended, projected? Almost every disorder whether it is in theory genetic or multifactorial like IBD, has a, an association with socioeconomic class. Um, they have tried to adjust for that um, through other mechanisms like parental education level, which is often strongly associated with socioeconomic status. Yes. But you can never truly completely adjust out all of the variables that go into uh, defining early life. I just wondered if inflammatory bowel disease among Scandinavians was a disease of the less well-off, and I don't think we have an answer to that. No. No. All right. Um, so um, is this... Well, you can't duplicate this sort of study in adults. That's very, very clear. But should primary caregivers be... A, be uh, <laughs> offering recommendations based on this study? Well, I suppose the recommendations based on this study are not hugely surprising that at one year of age, you would generally recommend higher intake of vegetables and lean meats and fish and lower intake of sugar-sweetened beverages and salty foods, which is not particularly surprising advice. Equally, the paper doesn't actually provide any evidence that a change in diet after development of IBD would influence outcome. I think most people would generally recommend a moderate to high intake of fiber and lean food in a patient with any chronic illness as a sensible course of action. So it really provides more evidence to kind of understanding the early life programming and perhaps mechanisms behind development of IBD more so yes, than its yes. actual management. It's interventions during the programmable period of bowel health, I suppose, is what I should have said and didn't. Mm. Um, 
Well, during the first year of life, most of your acquired bowel flora are going to be mom and dad's, aren't they? They are, and that this paper links to quite an important study called the TEDDY study, which was published in Nature in 2018, which demonstrated the change in the gut microbiome through childhood and early childhood in healthy uh, children, and essentially demonstrated that there were different phases where the very early phase is heavily influenced by the maternal microbiome and method of delivery and neonatal factors and then they go through this transitional phase around the age of one to three and then by the age of two to three years actually they more or less have a stable microbiome that then continues on until at least early adulthood so the theory that this paper proposes is that around the age of one is a much more influential period where diet may therefore influence your long-term microbiome and that is how diet at this age is having an impact on IBD risk considerably later in life. Something tells me that whether it's in Helsinki or Göteborg, there are freezers with stool samples from this cohort taken at age one and taken at age 21. That is, seeing whether or not uh, a sh particular shifts in the microbiome occurred. Do you know of any such studies? looking at what well i speak from absolute ignorance and now i'm going to say what sort of microbiome seems to conduce to inflammatory bowel disease um i mean the the most simple way is a reduced diversity and increase in certain species of bacteria i would need to check the exact details so that i could uh be coming back with some degree of accuracy rather than just making it up but there are particular patterns that are generally associated with with IBD um, which this study hasn't looked at this is a data driven study rather than looking to the microbiome itself and I suppose that would be the icing on the cake if this paper then were to link it directly to stool samples from this exact cohort that would make it even stronger but it doesn't seem like that is the case here. Well, we're going to have to settle for the good rather than the best, and this, I think, is pretty darn good. It's certainly not a study that's going to be duplicated in any other part of the world anytime soon, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. All right. Right, it's time to shift gears and to go to our spiritual home, yours and mine, that is to say the liver, and to ragu. Oh, let me say again, that's in gut, and guo, the first author's name is spelled G-U-O if you want to go to PubMed and check it out. Uh, now, um, as I was saying, back to the liver. What is life, as I often ask, without the liver? Here we are with Raghu et al. Impact of early immunosuppression on pediatric liver transplant outcomes. Jake, did you recommend this to us as, a, as an example of how not to do? Not at all. I recommended this um, probably purely for selfish reasons that this is what we do day in, day out uh, here in Birmingham. And it's just such an important topic. Uh, there was a feeling that there was a high disparity between what many centres did. And this paper sort of just confirmed that the data is highly variable. They talk about um, the postcode lottery in Britain. It really depends on where you wind up, what kind of medical care you get, or where you come from, what kind of medical care you get. 
12 centers, I think it is, a double handful at least, uh, one in Canada, the rest in the USA. And the provision was a bit uh, like a large tub of chocolates in which the no real, no real unanimity of choice, no real principles on which choice was made. Uh, just dive your hand in and take the one in the purple wrapper. But maybe I'm being severe. Well, I think that there are many accepted standard protocols for immunosuppression, early and induction immunosuppression in isolated liver transplantation. And many of those protocols are well established and work well. It's just that we don't have necessarily very good data to say which is superior to the other one. And this is a retrospective study that includes a large number of cases, two and a half thousand liver transplants. And it sort of just confirms that there is variability dependent on which exact outcomes you look at and whether it was from one, the, the whole 2,500 cohort or the subset with more detailed data of 1,500. It, you still had disparities on whether MMF, with or without MMF was better or whether to use basiliximab or, or ATG as, as induction agents. Here you are, it's one year after transplant, and you've been battering that poor child's immune system with God knows what. Um, one year, that's not a long time to follow things up, is it? It depends what outcomes you're looking at. So we know that the majority of acute T-cell mediated cellular rejection would occur within the first year, and therefore one mm -hmm. year should be a good duration to look at that as an outcome. That, but, sorry, but if you batter the immune system into submission enough to eliminate or substantially to reduce the possibility of uh, acute cellular rejection, aren't you teeing up that same child for PTLD? And that is the other side of the coin. So theoretically, you could immunodepress someone as much as you want and therefore would have minimal risk of rejection, but therefore would theoretically have higher risk of PTLD and um, severe disease. sepsis mm -hmm. and chronic renal impairment. Now, clearly, that there has to be some trade-offs in study design. These this study is from 2013 to 2018, and therefore, once you allow the uh -huh. uh, you know the period time followed up to have good quality data collected that is relatively standardizable. You know, they can't really go much beyond one year, perhaps maybe three years at most at this stage. I see. So later and longer term follow ups would be important to assess whether more intensive immunosuppression in early stage is associated with reduced risk of cellular rejection, but increased risk of PTLD, which is sort of what would make sense to most of us. And the same with sepsis, I suppose. Presumably sepsis as well, yes. So we're back to walking along the knife edge with our arms stretched out to balance as, as, as best we can. And what are you going to take away from this paper, other than that, as always, um, more studies are needed and with them a lot more funding? I think that is the main message. And but I would love to see a joined up international effort with true randomization of people to various immunosuppression protocols. I think that would be challenging to achieve, but extremely important. It's almost a bit perhaps 
sad that liver transplantation in children is it's not an uncommon procedure you know 500 a year or so in the US and mm. we don't have a standardized accepted uh, best practice of care so I think that is the main message the other one is that um, there, there needs to be yeah, high quality data to follow up there are also some points that I think did come out which I think um, need almost further looking into. So there were some individual patient characteristics that did seem to significantly associate with type of immunosuppression used. So, for example, um, that some patients on dialysis were more likely to have a specific protocol um, and some patients who had either non-biliary atresia cirrhosis, classed here as other cirrhosis, or those were who were uh, black were more likely to have uh, non-T-cell depleting um, immunosuppression agents like basiliximab at induction. And some of that I can understand because, for example, we know the patients of black origin are more likely to have uh, in, they're more likely to have lower immunosuppression mediated by tacrolimus and therefore typically have higher rates of rejection. So mm -hmm. perhaps that mm -hmm. might be why you'd go for a basiliximab at induction rather than uh, corticosteroid only. But I'm not necessarily sure I understand the association with dialysis because perhaps if you had a patient who was on moderately advanced CKD, then you would use a MMF regime and oh, tacrolimus yeah. sparing oh, yeah. regime. If they're already on dialysis, then surely you don't necessarily need a renal sparing protocol mm -hmm. with kidneys. So. Mm -hmm. Gone, gone, gone already, anyway. yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, though, okay, that's something to take away from it, that there are questions yet, particular questions, specific questions to be answered. Whoa, I don't know. It Maybe we should just turn the whole question over to the Scandinavian countries and let them decide what liver transplant protocols we all should use. They could do another lovely prospective study. It would be great. Okay. Jake, it's been fun. Um, I enjoyed the moment of background noise when the kids say, it's Saturday, come out of that attic daddy and come down with us and play. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And I hope that our listeners at home have a wonderful rest of the day as well. Thanks, Alex. See you soon.